Do you think that if patients took a breath at the front end, five days a week, a couple weeks, that they might be more committed to their choices? They could be, especially if they have ownership over them. And I hate the word compliance. I, I mean, I hate jargon anyway, but I feel like the word compliance yeah. just needs to get out of medicine because it means that, at least in the doctor's eyes, that the patient's doing exactly what you want them to do. And, and yet every doctor I know would not be a compliant patient necessarily, <laughs> right? They're going to take their time. They're going to get multiple opinions. They're going to look at all their options. Welcome to Message Engineer for the MedTech Startup. Do you want a clear message that resonates? Compelling message that scales? Competitive message that nails your unique value? On this show, we interview guests across medical device disciplines to help you communicate and message powerfully. Your host, Maureen Schaefer, is a three-time vice president of marketing with 30 years of experience creating money-moving messages from startups to IPO and beyond. Here's your host, Maureen Schaefer. Hi, I'm Maureen Schaefer, and welcome to The Message Engineer Show. Today, I am delighted to have with us Andrea Wilson-Woods, who is an award-winning author of the best-selling Better Off Bold. Uh, she is also the founder of uh, Blue Fairy, which is a nonprofit established in her younger sister's honor, uh, her younger sister passed at age 15 of liver cancer. Uh, and if that wasn't enough, uh, Andrea is also the CEO and co-founder of a digital health company called Cancer University. Uh, welcome, Andrea. So I usually start with something I call define the word warm up. And I think you've, uh, you've occupied so many really interesting roles in, you know, currently and kind of in the past that I would love to hear your definition of patient advocate. Oh, well, it's right there in the word, right? So just the word advocate alone, it's really fighting for what you want a cause or a belief. And so for patient advocates, it's, it's fighting for what that patient wants. And it's also educating them to all the choices they have, because oftentimes when you get a serious diagnosis, you don't realize that you have options. That's a, yeah, that's a great point. There's a tendency sometimes I would imagine for like fear to take over and thinking you have to go down one specific path, but medicine's constantly changing. It is. Um, and what I, what I hate to see, and, and I still see it too often, is you get this diagnosis, and, and I kind of blame doctors. There's this sense of urgency. You've got to do this right now. You have to do this therapy that right now, right now. If it's life-saving surgery, that's one thing. Or if it's a way to put you out of pain, so to give you a prescription for, for pain, that's fine. But to, to rush into a whole treatment that might be taking over the next six months, year, two years, three years of your life, it, it's dangerous. And that's what I feel like a lot of patients don't realize because I'm thinking of a patient right now. If you go down one path and you don't get a second opinion and you don't look at all the options, when the time comes and you're ready to do so, those other options may no longer be available. So if you're looking at clinical trials, but you've already had X, Y, and Z mm. treatments, then you won't be eligible. And, and I've heard from more than one cancer patient, you need to take your time. You know, again, if there's a life-saving surgery that needs to happen, years ago, my appendix burst, that was a life-saving surgery. That's different. But if it's a diagnosis and you can take a step back, and take the time to get a second opinion and and then really have a plan. The outcome is usually better. I would think that's interesting too, because one of the things that comes up a lot of times is right, like you said, this urgency. And, and there's also a uh, I tend to say that if you if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I've done that, right? If I ask a surgeon, how to That's solve right. a problem. It's Cut surgery. it out. 
Did you ask an oncologist, you know, someone who does radiation therapy, how to solve a problem? It's right. Chemo and radiation therapy. There are guidelines, right. That direct, you know, folks one way or the other, depending on a whole host of factors that are uh, incredibly complex. Um, But I think there is, yeah, that's a great point about taking that time at the front end to really understand what you're doing. Uh, that is and taking a really thoughtful approach. I wonder what you think about, there's a lot of talk about compliance. And so, for example, one of the things that I know about head and neck cancer is that one out of five patients are non-compliant with the radiation therapy and it affects, doubles the recurrence rate at like one percentage point increase, a decrease in survival with each kind of day that passes with non-compliance. So there are other data out there and that's probably five years ago kind of data. Do you think that if patients took a breath at the front end, you know, five days a week, a couple of weeks, that they might be more committed to their choices if they understood? They could be, especially if they have ownership over them. And I hate the word mm-hmm. compliance. I, I mean, I hate jargon anyway, but I feel like the word compliance yeah. just needs to get out of medicine because it means that, at least in the doctor's eyes, that the patient's doing exactly what you want them to do. And, and yet every doctor I know would not be a compliant patient necessarily, <laughs> right? They're going to take their time. They're going to get multiple opinions. They're going to look at all their options. You know, I, I like that you mentioned um, head and neck cancer. My step-grandfather was misdiagnosed with an abscess tooth. And small town, Arkansas, and it just kept getting worse. And finally, I kind of intervened, got him to a specialist at the University of Arkansas, got him to to the top guy in the state. And yes, it was squamous cell carcinoma. He had a tumor the size of a lemon. But he waited so long to even get a second opinion that by the time the surgeon took that out, it grew right back. And my, my step-grandpa had the wherewithal to say no to chemotherapy and radiation. He was supposed to start them. And I always say that patients, they may not realize it. They may not be able to articulate it in medical terms, but they know their bodies. And I was in the room when, when my step-grandpa said, no, I'm not doing it. And my stepmother and my step-grandmother were really upset. I mean, this is his wife and his daughter. And they were like, no, no, no. And I said, no, 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 you need to listen to him. And he continued to go do testing. And the surgeon said it was the right decision because the cancer had come back so quick. He had never seen anything like it. So the chemotherapy and radiation would not have made a difference. And instead he went into hospice and he had plenty of time to say goodbye to everybody. And, and he had this beautiful, peaceful death in his wife's arms, in his own bed at home. You know, was he a non-compliant patient because he didn't do the radi- radiation or chemotherapy? Some doctors might think so, um, mm-hmm. but he did what was best for him. Yeah, I think um, it's interesting uh, because a lot of people talk about this idea of are you um, – are you prolonging life? Or are you prolonging death? Yeah. Right. And what's that quality of life that remains uh, that you'll have? Yeah. Yeah. I, I know a patient, he, um, he and his wife had a terrible oncologist, live in a very small town. Like out, they live outside of a very small town in rural Texas the oncologist, a general oncologist, comes to town one day a week. And and he was terrible. And he wasn't a specialist in liver cancer. But they had a wonderful GI doctor who finally said, the treatment is killing him. And you know it's not curative. So you have some decisions to make. And I thought it was so brave of them because they decided to stop treatment. And he went into hospice. That general oncologist got mad, told his wife that she was killing her husband. That is awful. That's a terrible thing to say. And 
they had the most wonderful last year, almost year and a half. And in fact, he had to renew hospice twice <laughs> because he didn't die. And he was living and they were doing things. I mean, two days before he died, he was doing yard work. He was doing so well. And there are studies that back this up, that patients often live longer in hospice than they would have on treatment. Yeah, I find that, I find that really fascinating. I know people, my um, brother-in-law's mom did similar. She'd had cancer, beat it once, and then when it recurred, she was like, I'm done. Good for her. That was that was that was worse than death. I'm not going through that again. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I have to respect that. I wonder, you know, you you have this unique, really unique uh, point of view, right? From having uh, from your sister, right? You're a sister to Adrian. Your parental role figure in a way, right? Taking custody of her when she was eight, as I understand. Yeah. Um, and as a caregiver, and I'm wondering with that kind of really unique perspective, you know, how do you, what, what did you learn and what are some of the things that you see need to really shift when you give these stories about, you know, oncologists, people making decisions and pausing at the front to think them through. I mean, what did you learn from that that's unique that we broadly need to understand and appreciate? Well, my sister's experience was very unusual at the time because children her age did not get primary liver cancer, hepatocellular carcinoma. It's, it was very much, especially 20 years ago, a, a cancer that um, non-North American males over the age of 50 got, because <laughs> I remember that phrase exactly. So it was very unusual. And I would make very different decisions today because mm. I knew from the get-go that the pediatric oncologist didn't have a lot of experience with her cancer, but, mm. but he pressed on us this sense of urgency, like this is, we've got to do this. And, and I didn't understand that the chemotherapy was palliative and not curative. He, he never used either one of those words with me ever. Um, and by the time I got a second opinion, and by the time I actually was able to fight the insurance and get her transferred to UCLA, she had already undergone four rounds of chemotherapy that had just absolutely wow. decimated her immune system. I, I don't think there's any evidence that it actually helped extend her life at all. And, and so that's why I encourage patients now to get a second opinion right away. Um, and, we, and we do help with that through Blue Fairy. Um, I encourage patients to, to, to take, you know, a moment to sit back and think about all the options. And for liver cancer, there are so many more options available now, but it's also very confusing because there are so many options. And you made a really great point. Depending on that doctor's specialty, they're going to have a bias. And that's something that I help patients and families understand and something that I didn't understand. Um, the role of a multidisciplinary team and, and how important it is that, yes, you, you may have a multidisciplinary team, but you, the patient, or in some cases, if you want it to be your loved one, you're the captain of the team, <laughs> not the doctor. You know, you're the one in charge. I, I, I gave this uh, speech recently for this conference where you know, I hear so much from patients and caregivers how these teams aren't acting like teams. And what I see is that even in the best tumor boards, they often operate like swim teams, which to me is not really a team. <laughs> so, I mean, unless you're doing a swim relay, it's still not really a team, right? Because the swimmer is in their lane doing their specialty and mm -hmm. focusing on their time, and they're not communicating at all with the other swimmers. And as much as I dislike football, I think that's a really good analogy for what a team should be like. Because in football, you can see right away when the communication breaks down. And even when you have the greatest of all time, like a Tom Brady, it can't, he can't be the best player on the team. He can't be the only one. There has to be someone that's going to catch that ball he's going to throw. 
So you really Mm -hmm. have to have a team that works together and communicates and keeps in mind that at the end of the day, the patient is the one in charge. Yeah, I think that's, I love that analogy of the swim team, right? Because they all come with like the research they know, right? And they're exactly research they know, the meetings they attend. uh, And yeah, they're all very specialty driven. I'm thinking of all the conferences I've ever been to, right? AHA, the American Heart Association, right? ACC, the American College of Cardiology. Uh, They're all like right down one lane. Uh, And then they become such so deeply specialized, which is great in one sense, but it's hard to kind of step back and extract that kind of across and build connections between those specialty silos, if you will. They are. They are silos. Uh, Again, even in the best tumor boards, they are very siloed. And, And that's very hard for patients and families to navigate. I mean, I remember with my sister, there was this moment during her third round of chemo that it was, it was just very challenging. Like everything that could go wrong had gone wrong and the, a scan came back and the radiologist and the GI and her oncologist all disagreed about what they saw in the scan. They, and then they argued about it in the room in front of her. And then they turned to me and said, well, what do you think? Because based on what they thought, they had different recommendations about what to do. And it was such a a horrible feeling to be put in. I was like, okay, does she have an infection? Does she not? I don't know. And finally, I decided to go with the radiologist because I figured, one, it's his job to actually read these things day in, day out. And two, Mm -hmm. his attitude was wait and see. And I felt like in that moment, that was the best thing to do because the last thing she needed was another medication in her body. And it, mm-hmm. luckily, it was the right thing. She did not have this infection that the oncologist and GI were convinced that she had that showed up on the scan. She didn't. And but but for a family to be put in that decision when you're not a doctor, it's 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 really hard. It's confusing. It's terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. You don't have that background in medicine, and uh, you haven't read. Yeah. I mean, when I. When I hear my family ask me for help with things, I'm I go to sure the guy, I go through, right? I go PubMed, fire up the National Library of Medicine, and I search for the clinical guidelines yeah. for that society. And I start there and then kind of work out from there. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's challenging, right? And for people who aren't part of this or people who came up when there were different hierarchy, the hierarchy worked a little bit differently. Uh, that can be super challenging. So one of, one of the things that I find interesting in, uh, in what you're talking about a bit, and I think it touches on this, is that I've heard the idea of, you know, we've, we've called people patients, right, as if they are their diagnosis for very, very long time. And uh, other Especially people are certain advocating... Diseases. Like diabetics, yeah, and, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's very, very true. And uh, some people believe that to be disempowering. Uh, I hear other people suggesting it should be healthcare consumers. I hear other people pushing back against consumer to healthcare client <laughs> that we should see them a little bit more like, uh, you know, pe- peers or a little bit more as the, our customer, our client. And I'm wondering what what your thoughts are around all of those terms. Uh, Should we, shouldn't we? What do you think? Yeah, I don't like consumer. I don't don't like consumer. um, Because people don't choose to to be a patient. They don't usually want to be the patient. Um, You know, I, I have not heard that feedback. Um, and I'm th- thinking about the doctors I know. I wonder, I wonder what they would say. I just can't imagine them thinking of their patients as, as clients. Um, but there's nothing wrong with thinking of them as human beings and as equals mm-hmm. in that respect. Are they your academic equal, your intellectual equal? Maybe not. Um, 
you know, are they a doctor? Probably not, but, but they are a human being and so are you. And, and that's something to keep in mind. I remember I spoke to this doctor a couple of years ago and he's an oncologist. He specializes in lymphoma. And then he got diagnosed with lymphoma. And he said wow. he had no idea what it was really like until it happened to him. And his frustration with his patients was that he felt like they weren't listening or paying attention when they first got the diagnosis. And yet when he got the same diagnosis in an, in an area that he completely understands, he said he was in a fog for a whole week. For a week, he just didn't even know what to do or what to say or who to contact. And then it clicked for him that, oh, this is, this is what it's like for my patients. It's shock. Mm -hmm. I'm going through shock. It's going to take some time. And then I'll know what to do. And it finally gave him some empathy that he desperately needed. And he was, and he was a very, at least by all accounts that I could see, he was a very nice man. He didn't have a huge mm -hmm. ego, but he admitted to lacking a certain amount of empathy for his patients. I think that's, you know, outside of going through that specific situation, right? Uh, difficult to like really, we always talk about like walking in another person's shoes exactly. kind of idea, right? Yeah. And I think it's one thing to try to project that. It's another thing to actually yeah. kind of go through that situation. And I think, you know, what can we, you know, I, I came up through medical devices, right? And uh, initially as an engineer and then very rapidly jumped ship into product management, which is kind of help, you know, working with engineering, R&D and manufacturing yeah. and, you know, whomever. And in my case, physicians largely and surgeons largely to develop and design new products and kind of move them out. You know, as you've seen with cancer specifically, are there things that industry really needs to, we've been talking about healthcare a bit, are there things that industry really needs to be thinking about that they're not, or ways in which they could more, they could better include patients or caregivers? I mean, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? So many thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> so many thoughts. Um, what should I, we do? I, well, and I think we all do this. I think we make certain assumptions based on our own experience. I think that's just, that's human nature. That's what we do. Um, for mm -hmm. example, and it's kind of a minor example, but um, I was at this conference, this, I remember it was right before COVID, and this one particular hospital system was determined to have their own community in-house where people would see each other face-to-face. And, and they felt like that was in the best interest of their patients. And, and we have a fantastic thriving online community with patients from all over the country. And, and so I just kind of push back um, and some doctors don't like it when I do that, but <laughs> I push back and I said, what's in it for the patients? You know, do you, do you want them to come in person so they can see you so you can see them? And they were like, well, they'll meet other people. I'm like, they can meet other people online. You know, you're asking them to take the time to travel to the hospital, to pay for parking, to get from parking to wherever this is going to be, and then do the reverse. And what if they need childcare? You know, what about that? So are you going to pay for that babysitter for that hour and a half that they're gone? You know, they just, it felt like they weren't thinking it through. It's like, why can't you have a community that is accessible for everyone? And I even said, have you just asked your patients? Have you polled them? Have you said, hey, you know, what would you prefer? Because yes, there might be some older patients where computer access might be more difficult. Although I think now with cell phones, that's no longer the case. So I just, I really pushed back because they were making so many assumptions and, and we're all guilty of doing that. So you really have to, and I'm not saying that all the time we know what we want. Steve Jobs, I'm going to mutilate it, but he had this great quote about how he, you know, customers didn't know what they wanted um, and, until they had it in their hands. And he was referring, of course, initially to the iPod and then the iPhone and et cetera. And there's an aspect of that too. But when you're making things perhaps more difficult for patients, you need to ask them, 
and how they feel about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I see that I see that a lot. Um, I'm sure you do. <laughs> I, I I see that yeah even relative to kind of if you will paying customers mm-hmm. right with organizations and I say okay so you you've developed this you're showing me this prototype. I remember uh, this one en- this one engineer so excited he brought in his three products I just started with the company this is years twenty plus years ago. He's like, I've developed this and I want to show it to you and it's da-da-da-da and it works like this. And I said, who have you spoken to? And he's like, there's three people. And I'm like, okay, where do they work? All the same institution, same (laughs) department. (laughs) And I was like, I'm going to show you why this isn't going to work. (laughs) Wow. The next one and then the next one. And I'm like... I know, I know we want to kind of keep this close to the vest, you know, close to the vest and keep our secrets, uh, but you have to ask more people. You yeah. have to ask more people. Um, and you have to talk to more, right? Like you're talking, you have to ask the community, like a broad range of people who are, or whoever your community, if you have an existing, like you're saying, existing community, you have yeah. to ask them what they want. Yeah, you do. And then provide it, not what you want. <laughs> or what you think they need. Assuming things. Yeah. Yeah, not not a good plan for success. And I, I think I agree. Yeah. How uh patience, one of the things it's uh one of the things that's really interesting that I find with um the FDA has certain guidelines and rules, right? One of them is kind mm-hmm. of around design control. One of those pieces around design control for FDA regulated devices in the United States, medical devices specifically, uh, is that you're required to do human factors, right? So you're required to have a group of individuals kind of follow whatever you put forth, your instructions for use or whatever it may be to use them. And as we look to, as we see this like sea change happening, you know, 20 years ago, it was from inpatient to outpatient. 10 years ago, it was from outpatient to ambulatory surgery centers. Now, it's into the home environment. And how much mm-hmm. care can we move to the home environment? Because uh, all the studies, at least I've seen, uh, patients prefer it generally mm-hmm. with the right supports right. around it. Right. Uh, payers prefer it because it's less expensive, generally speaking. Um, yeah. And people do better generally on some of the data that I've seen, and I'm, I'm sure it's, this is not across the board, but, you know, readmits to the emergency room, things like this yeah. that they've studied and small control groups so far. Uh, it, it looks, it looks positive. Um, but as we, as we move into the home environment, as we're required by FDA to do human factors work, what do we, who should we be talking to? I mean, is it patients and caregivers and if well, if you're going into yeah, so if you're going, I mean, if you're going into patients' homes, let let's say um, my dad has early stage COPD, so let's say it's some mm. something for COPD. If you're going into patients' homes, you need to talk to those patients with that particular disease. You need to talk mm. to their family. But you also need to talk across all socioeconomic levels, different parts of the country, um, of course, different ethnicities and races. And, and I think the, that part, that last part, mm-hmm. the FDA and, and, more, and more people are becoming aware. But, but what I feel like I see missing all the time is the socioeconomic part. You know, I, I used to live in Los mm-hmm. Angeles. I live in Birmingham, Alabama now, and everything south of Birmingham is considered the Bible Belt, and it's very, very poor. And on a very sort of simplistic level, the number of women who live in the Bible Belt who get prenatal care or don't, excuse me, don't get prenatal care is shocking. They will often wait until they are in labor and then drive to Birmingham because here in Birmingham, 
it's like a healthcare mecca. I mean, I can throw a rock and hit five hospitals. There's a lot of healthcare options here in Birmingham, but south of here, there's almost nothing, even in Montgomery, which is the capital. It's just very, very poor. And, and so I think that that is what is missing is, you know, like, <laughs> I've got a story for you. So, so what, so one time, um, I was, uh, through, through our bank partner, I was, um, pitching to, um, a very wealthy person who occasionally invests in startups and he's so wealthy and so well known that we had to sign an NDA just to even have a conversation with him. It was crazy. And luckily it was not on zoom. It was on the phone because I got so mad. I'm sure my face turned purple. I was livid. Because he was asking, well, I don't get this. Like, why, you know, why would anyone need, you know, access to courses or education? You know, I mean, if I get diagnosed with cancer, I'm just going to hop on my plane and fly to Mayo. And I lost my mind. Okay. And, and this guy is so connected. Like, he is related to the most wealthy and politically known family in New York and whoever just popped into your head is probably the right family. <laughs> and so he's never not had money. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know which was funnier. The fact that he wouldn't just, you know, go to a cancer center right there in New York city where there are many fine cancer centers or the fact that, Oh, I'm just going to hop on my plane and fly to Mayo. I was like, and I was very tactful, but I was livid. And I just said, you know what? Most people can't fly on a, on their plane and just, you know, hop, you know, hop on their plane, plane and fly to Mayo. See, I get discombobulated just talking about it. I got so mad, you know, and I told this guy, I said, you don't even get it. You're like the 1% of 1%, you know, and that mm-hmm. works for you. And that's great. But most people can't do that. That's not an option for them. And I'm not saying all academics are are as bad as this guy, certainly not. Um, but, but there's that sort of ivory tower effect. Mm. You know, I remember having a conversation with a lovely woman one time, uh, who worked for a major pharmaceutical company and, and she had a very similar response, not that she owned her own plane, but a very similar response mm-hmm. because she lives in Manhattan and there are so many different options. And I said, but you don't represent the majority of the country. And, mm-hmm. and so I, I feel like, I feel like a lot of people get forgotten, really forgotten. I think this, the socioeconomic thing is critically important, right? People are a bit more yes. aware of some of the other dimensions we need to, you know, DEI and, and uh, yeah. we need to be looking at more closely. Uh, but socioeconomics tends to get brushed to the side. It, what's interesting is that it, in particularly in the home uh in the home environment, right? The idea that they can't assume there is a caregiver. You can't That's assume right. that they have uh, access to f- good food, right? We can't right. assume a lot of these things. And it makes me think a little bit of high schools in some of the more economically challenged areas where they kept trying to improve the curriculum, yeah. right? And and then they realized that, in fact, it had nothing to do with the curriculum. The kids were incredibly tired. You know, when they came to school, uh, they were working, they weren't sleeping, they were responsible for supporting part of their family. Yeah. And they needed things like laundry and yeah. a food pantry because there's food insecurity. And these other things that then enabled then the test scores started to go up. We, we could, that's a whole other subject we're not going to cover here. But <laughs> then on paper, the numbers looked better. How's that? Yeah. <laughs> and I think that sometimes without talking to, without talking to people, sometimes there's a tendency to look at, at a, a culture, for example, or a group of individuals like, hey, pe- people with COPD who live in the United States and put them in one homogeneous bucket and think that there's one solution to that without disaggregating it and understanding that because that's complicated, that's hard to do. 
um, all these like micro segments, but they need, they need very different things in order to be, you know, well or successful or make decisions or have care at, you know, proper care at home. Yeah. My heart really goes, goes out to those people because I know what that's like. There was a time when I was raising my sister when um, we were evicted. Um, I didn't have a steady income. I didn't feel like myself, but I didn't know why. And um, I had $20 in my checking account at any given time. I mean, it was so hand to mouth that, that a friend's friend would buy us groceries um, just to get a new apartment. I had to lie on the application and thankfully we got it. We moved into a studio apartment, just the two of us. And it turned out I got finally got diagnosed because I ended up going to the county hospital emergency room and I had Graves' disease. And, oh, wow. and it had gotten so bad that I was borderline about to have a heart attack. And I had no idea... And I had not gone to the hospital because I didn't have health insurance. Right. And that's, and that's why I, yeah. And that's why I waited in, until it was an emergency situation. And then I ended up in the hospital for five days and then eventually had radiation to burn out my thyroid. And, you know, when you're, when you're living like that, when you are literally like, okay, <laughs> I have $2, what can I do with $2? You know, how many, how many packets of ramen noodles is that going to buy me? Um, that's scary. You know, it's that, um, what is it? Is it Maslow's? I forget. Hierarchy of needs. Yeah. Hierarchy yeah. of needs. Yeah. yeah. When you're right there at the bottom and you're just trying to survive and you're not thinking weeks ahead, you're thinking one day at a time. That is a very scary place to be. It's really scary. You know, when you're saving quarters so you can do laundry, I mean, it's, it's really, really, really tough. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it, most people understand that. There's, uh, that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> I don't think I want to entertain that just right, just yet. Uh, I, I do think that sometimes this, so I'm going to go there. I do think that this idea of, bootstrapping and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, individualism, this, um, it, in the United States, the kind of overwhelming push in that direction yeah, is, I agree. can be sometimes really deleterious, right? Because we need other people. We need we other people to help us and question us and, you know, push us and go, what are you doing? <laughs> like, what's happening over here? Hey, can I help you with that? Um, and I do think that when, when people, I've seen when people hold that idea, which is very much like America, right? Uh, an American, yeah, that's kind of an American ideal idea. Yeah. Yeah. That it can be, uh, it can prevent the connection. Like you were talking about empathy earlier. I've seen that prevent the connect, the empathy, and an emphatic response to people about what are you really going through and, and wanting to understand it, not looking down on it as if you, you know, you could have done better, but like, where, where are you and how can I help and what do you need and what do we need yeah. to do? And I do think that, yeah, socioeconomics, you identified a big one. Uh, yeah. I can tell you that that's something that in all my years of doing marketing, we look at geography like for example we're going to look at who do we want to get in our focus groups who needs to be on our advisory board things like that and we look at let's say it's just the u.s geography initially um we look at let's get a mix of major academic mental medical centers and community hospitals and folks later on in their career and folks earlier on in their career uh and uh we think that we've mixed, you know, age and academic, non-academic, and some geography, and good to go. <laughs> we are, there's a lot we're missing when we're doing that, and I, I, we can do a lot better, right? There are a lot of ways and means that we can connect to people now online that a lot more people are very comfortable with. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, well, look at, yeah. I think a really easy place to look is reading levels. The mm. average reading level for Americans, and, and I'm sure this is going to go down, is seventh grade. If English is not your first language, it's fourth to fifth grade. And I will never understand why sometimes there are widely published papers that are meant for the general public and no one thought to think about the readability. And, you know, a professional academic abstract is one thing. That's fine. But if you're writing something for the public consumption, you know, you've got to change the grade level. And some people... And a lot of doctors think, oh, we're dumbing it down. And it's like, no, 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 you're not dumbing it down. The English language is, is really amazing. And you can just simplify the language. It's sometimes it's as simple as that sentence that you made a paragraph and making it into five <laughs> separate sentences. You know, I mean, writing is my background. I'm super passionate about it. And even with my own medical memoir, I, and I, I don't leave out any of the names of medications or anything, but I was constantly aware, even with the first draft, that it came in at a seventh grade level. That was my goal. Like I wanted to make sure mm -hmm. that even someone without a high school education would understand my book because I, because I knew who my audience was and what I, you know, and who I wanted to reach. And and that gets lost, oh my gosh, all the time. I mean, sometimes my nonprofit will work with different organizations on certain projects. And and I, before I even have to look, like I just simplify the language, you know, and then they'll say, oh, no, it's fine. And then I'll, I'll run it through a checker. I'm like, mm, no, this is coming. This is coming in with someone who has two years of college minimum. And they're like, what? Yeah. I, I mean, it's it's not that's not even a really difficult thing to do, but it's so foreign to some people, a lot of people, a lot of really well-educated people. I think that, yeah, that's really, that's a great point about writing uh, because I read medical journal articles all the time for fun. I'm sure you I find do. it fascinating. <laughs> uh, and it makes complete sense to me. And then uh, I have to say, even in my uh, handful of years ago, my sister asked me for help with something, and I went and dug some stuff up and sent her a bunch of links to PubMed articles. She's a college graduate of an excellent university, and she said, I don't know what this means. Yeah. Like, I, what is this even, what are these things? Yeah. And <laughs> I, I was like, what? <laughs> so, so I think sometimes we have to be, you know, kind of hit upside the head with, this yeah. is not everyone. Everyone doesn't, it might be the world we're generally in, steeped in day to day, but this is not the regular community um, yeah. and folks who, you know, right, normal people out there. I think, the, I think the other thing that's interesting about writing and keeping it simple is it's so much easier to read. Right? We've all read books, like I used to call Faulkner. It was like it was swimming through mud. And <laughs> not, not a big fan. Uh, it's just me. I'm like, you don't introduce someone on page two, and then the next time you see them pop up is page 246. And you're like, you could never get where, away with that now. Where did come from? I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Um, and I love reading. Uh, I think there's so much we can do to be more clear. Uh, you know, it's easy to plug it in and say, hey, it should be a sixth grade level, right? Or a seventh grade level, like you're saying. But I think the other thing that uh, people miss sometimes is that it's more clear. When you take a paragraph, run-on sentence, like you're talking yeah. about, and you chop it into short sentences, it's just, it's easier to, for people to read and comprehend. And I think, yeah. I wonder if readability really takes into consideration comprehension at all. Um, I haven't thought about that, but I was thinking about that when you were talking, yeah. and that popped into my head. Yeah. Right? Because some people can read or even speak, uh, and uh, but then understanding and comprehension is is different. That's that's a really, really good point. I mean, I, I think one of the reasons I'm so passionate about advocacy and patient education is when my sister was first diagnosed the surgeon who did her biopsy gave me copies from his medical textbooks 
because I asked, because there were all these mm -hmm. one sheets on this chemotherapy, very simple, easy to understand these one sheets. But I'm like, well, that's the treatment. I want to understand the disease first. And he said, mm -hmm. and, and at that time, you know, there weren't even brochures. There was nothing that existed for the type of cancer she had. So he made me all these copies, bless him, he did. I mean, like 30 pages and brings them in. And I look down and at this point, I didn't have my master's, but I did have my bachelor's. So I had a college education and I looked down and I felt like the stupidest person on the planet. And I ended up buying a Grey's Anatomy, which I still have, and a medical dictionary. And both of them are two inches thick. And I felt like I was deciphering another language from another planet. I, I mean, I understood Spanish better at that point. It was crazy. And I was just sitting there going, what, what, you know, and, and, you know, writing on top of the words. And, and that always stuck in the back of my mind. It's like, why is this so hard? This should not be hard. Because when he spoke directly to me, he was very conversational. Mm -hmm. And, um, and another thing I'm really passionate about is avoiding euphemisms when we're talking about dying. And, and I think a lot of this stuff actually needs to start in med school. Like, I think that's a good place to start. And I, I heard actually that USC's medical school has a class mm -hmm. now for doctors on how to talk about dying and why you cannot use euphemisms, especially in a multicultural setting, mm -hmm. you know, because saying someone passed away in a different language may not mean the same thing as it does in English. Right. And, and I thought, well, okay, that's a good step in the right direction, you know, because, because I feel like that's when you can make changes when people are still really young and their careers are being molded, you know, and start really early. I don't, I don't think it's as easy to convince a doctor who's been practicing for 20 years. Uh, that is definitely, yeah, I completely agree with that. Uh, I completely agree. Yeah. You, they, you need both. For different reasons. Uh, yeah. For different yeah. reasons. I do, I agree with, it's oh, interesting. Uh, I think one of the things about, about death and about the lack of euphemisms around it is um, there does, in my experience, and I'm, I'm really curious because you deal with a lot of different, you dealt with it personally, you are dealing with a lot of different people and having these conversations. And I had this incredibly unique experience growing up where um, my mom was a nurse. She's an RN. She mm -hmm. was a nurse on the infirmary floor at the mother house of the Sisters of St. Francis. Wow. <laughs> so there were, yeah, soup, like super, super like niche of a niche of a niche. And uh, no more than 30 patients at any point in time. And oh, the, young, nice. the youngest nun was 89. And the oldest was 98. And like 90, 95% of them were ambulatory. Um, but there, there was this dignity to care that I don't, I haven't seen as widely. Um, this idea that no one was cath, you know, people were moving, even if they were, you know, they got ill and then they got better, they moved them to like a commode and back. They, there was a lot of dignity, you know, they got them dressed every day. People did not sit around in their pajamas all the time because um, they were nuns, right? This was like their life and who they were. And they wanted to give them this, like this dignity um, at yeah. the end of their lives. And uh, they had bells. There were no buzzers or lights or they literally had like, you know, those dinner bells you see in movies. They, oh, they each gosh. had a, dish, a bell that they could ring. And, uh, yeah, there were no feeding tubes. Uh, there are a couple people who had to have their food pureed, and then they would sit with them and feed it to them. And, uh, and then when they, were, when they were dying, when someone was dying, there wasn't, I think it's because they're not, right, Catholic nuns, like the glory of, right, the end of life, the glory of God, the going to heaven, right, their, right. their orientation, right, and faith and belief is, helps in that regard right. and uh their friends would sit with them their friends would sit with them and pray and then they all took turns sitting with them they weren't yeah. hooked up to tubes and contraptions no one was sent to the hospital to die right 
And it was, yeah, it was, it's very different than, <sighs> it's very different than how I've generally seen it um, take place in hospitals. And I'm wondering, I mean, that's a whole like, you know, seven day seminar right there on my contract, <laughs> right? But I, 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 what's the, what can we do about that? What's the disconnect? There seems to be this, uh, I see a lot of this prolonging death. I mean, hospice is a great step in the right direction. Um, but a lot of this prolonging death versus prolonging life or quality of life. When I, yeah, I even remember 20, ish years ago sitting at this Hopkins symposium on cancer and sitting in the room and they said the biggest problem today is that people are surviving hmm. because we assumed they weren't going to survive so we just barraged them with everything to try to keep them alive not thinking they would survive and then we got better and better and better at it and more and more people survived but their quality of life was Terrible. Not great. Yeah. Right. So they have to really switch that. Listen right? to that sentence you just said, right? So we're gonna give them everything we can to keep them alive. But wait, they survived? Like <laughs> it's almost like your expectations and goals are completely out of alignment with each other. It, that's it's so strange to me. Oh no. Do I need to mute myself? My dog is barking. Can you hear her? Yeah, that's okay. Okay. We can right. still hear you perfectly. Okay, good. She'll uh, get over it. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, uh, my dog is locked in with my son right now. <laughs> dog goes down and across the house. When okay, that is cute. So she has so I have a, I have a story about this. Um, one thing I am very proud of is that I gave my sister a very good death in our home, in her bed, surrounded by people who loved her not hooked up to anything um, other than oxygen. Mm -hmm. And since that time, I have seen the exact opposite. My maternal aunt had cancer, I want to say in her 60s, and somehow beat it despite her horrific lifestyle. And by horrific, I just mean she, sur um, she survived on cigarettes and coffee and one biscuit a day. She was extremely anorexic. Um, scarily thin and we're, we're like we couldn't even believe she survived breast cancer the first time but I, I think they cut it out and she was good it came back just with a vengeance in her 70s and apparently her doctor told her she was dying and she didn't tell anyone and she was put into the hospital and without going into the background I happened to be the right place at the right time in the right town and I was traveling through and I just felt this really deep need to go see her mm -hmm. and I walked into this room and she was hooked up to every possible machine you could imagine and she had tumors in her breast her lungs her bones and her liver and I was horrified and I went to um the nurse's station asked to speak to the charge nurse and I said what's the plan here and she said what do you mean what's the plan I said what's the plan I said she's clearly dying what's the plan and she said oh <laughs> we're gonna put her in a nursing home tomorrow and I, I was like what no she's dying we, we need to find a way to help her die peacefully and and without pain and she said nope she didn't have advanced directives, so hey, we're sending her to a nursing home. And she said, don't you worry about it. Medicare is going to cover all of that. And I was horrified. Like, I just mm -hmm. lost my mind. And I said, that's not happening. And so I went back in the room, and then a nurse came in, a different nurse, and said, you seem like you understand the severity of the situation. I want to show you something. And I said, go out right ahead. And she peels back the hospital gown. The tumors are coming through her skin. Oh my gosh. And I said, okay, what do we need to do? And she said, we need to, she's going to wake up because she isn't on hospice. She's not getting palliative care. So the pain medication is going to wear off here shortly. 
She's going to wake up and she said, I need you to get her to declare a power of attorney so we can move this forward so we can get her to hospice and get her the relief she needs. I said, okay, done. And sure enough, my aunt woke up within 10 minutes screaming in pain and very lucid, but difficult Mm -hmm. to talk because she even had stuff in her mouth. And so long story short, you know, we communicated with a notebook. I got her to declare a power of attorney. I got that person there. And, and we had this really beautiful conversation through the notebook about how terrified she was of dying. And I was not close to my aunt, but she was very religious. And I, and I just said to her, I said, why are you so scared? And, and, you know, she still believed in heaven. She still believed there was more than this life. And I said, well, look who's on the other mm-hmm. side. Your dad is there. Your mother's there. My, my grandparents actually died within 36 hours of each other when I was 18 years old. Mm-hmm. And it was really traumatic for the family. And I said, you know, your brother is there. My sister, her favorite niece, is there. Mm-hmm. I said, they're all waiting for you. And I, and I told her, I said, you know, we're going to make sure you're no longer in pain. But at this point, the only thing keeping you here is you because you understand what I'm saying and you have to make a decision to let go. And she had a dying wish and she wanted to see her sisters and be reunited with her sisters. And I made that happen. I wasn't there when it happened, but I left. I made it happen though that night. And my cousin actually, to her credit, made that happen. And a few hours after she saw her sisters, And I should say, to be clear, they had not been together in the same room, all three of them in 10 years, because there was always a spat. There was always some kind of family spat going on, right? And so she just wanted to see her sisters. And a few hours after she saw them, she passed away in her sleep. Still in the hospital, but as peaceful a death as she could have had at that point. Mm -hmm. But she never, ever, ever should have been hooked up to all those machines. That should never have happened. That was awful. And it was because she was terrified of dying and wouldn't talk to anyone about it. And and yet, I also blame the hospital on this. I mean, the plan to put her in a nursing home? Are you kidding me? You know, no empathy, none whatsoever. I'm off my Uh, (laughs) soapbox now. There is a lot to unpack there. Yeah, I know. you and I seem to have <laughs> similar views on on dying and death, right? This idea of let's not prolong death. Yeah. You know, if there's an opportunity to prolong living and a high quality of life, great. Yeah. Um, if there's not, let's have that like honest conversation. Uh, yeah. So, but I, yeah. Nobody gets. I don't, there aren't many people who get, uh, get paid for that. I mean, to be frank. So the economics don't support a lot of, spending a lot of time in that regard um, and having a lot of those conversations and working through those things. Um, I mean, there's, you know, kind of E&M codes and uh, simpler things, but I think, yeah, the economics are a little different. Um, They don't. Just how we view dying as a culture. Is so backwards. Mm. There's a lot to do with our culture. So much work. Aging and death yes. and yeah. uh, sick care versus, well, health Wellness, care, yeah. yeah. Right, and all of that. So uh, I, am, I am glad to see shifts happening in that direction. Uh, and we have, a, we have a long way to go. We do. We have a long way to go to get it right. So, yeah, a lot more to do there. Uh, Well, I haven't actually like teared up on my own podcast yet. So, (laughs) congratulations (laughs) for that. Oh, Um, (laughs) and uh, (laughs) you're you're sucking it in really well. (laughs) Uh, yeah. So, I've yeah, I've become an expert at that. So that's the good news and the bad news all wrapped up. Uh, It's been really, it's such an important conversation to have around patients and advocates and having real conversations with people, talking about socioeconomics, 
uh, making sure really considering that when we think about whether it's developing new programs or um, tech or digital health in particular, uh, making sure that it's really we're really developing equitable solutions across the demographics and socioeconomics and uh, there's a there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and uh, more and more people are looking at it and there's still so still a lot of opportunity for us to improve, right? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean that that short time with my aunt, it couldn't have been more than even two hours, had such a profound effect on me and the way that she looked that I used to love horror films and I used to love anything with zombies. I mean, I talked so many people into watching The Walking Dead that they should give me some of the residuals there. And I loved that stuff. But when I saw what I would consider almost a zombie in real life, I've never been able to watch that kind of graphic horror stuff ever again. I stopped watching, never finished watching The Walking Dead. I, I couldn't watch any of it anymore because, because I saw that it was actually possible that that could happen if the right circumstances and the right people were not in place. And, and you asked me at the top, you know, about patient advocacy. Well, you know, that, that's being an advocate. And we need, we need more people like you and more patients asking the right questions and, um, yeah, demanding to understand things more holistically. And yeah. obviously the reverse, right? People listening and hearing it and being willing to provide the right information and let people know what's really happening, not, not stepping away from the, the truth of the matter, no matter how difficult it may be to have that conversation. Yeah. So super, super critical. Uh, I usually close with a couple fun questions. It seems maybe a little inappropriate. <laughs> no, no, we need, we need some fun. We need to lighten it up. <laughs> All right. Good, good, good. All right. So uh, in, in doing my research about you, oh, no. uh, I <laughs> one, of the, one of the things that was super interesting was that you have run marathons, even though you said you hate running. Yeah. <laughs> why do that? What's the, why do that? Oh, I don't anymore, but um, I did it initially to raise money for Blue Fairy. Um, I did it to, to raise money for Blue Fairy. I had done a marathon for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society mm -hmm. and, and saw how well that they managed that. And I, so I knew I could finish because I really, truly am a terrible runner, but I finished. And, and so that's how I ended up. Uh, I did six marathons and one half marathon four in LA, two in Vegas, and one in Vancouver. Haven't done one in that a long time. <laughs> remarkable. Your why, right? People talk about like you have to have your why. You have to have your why. Like, yeah. you're, not, you're not doing things. It's because you don't have a big enough why. Your why was big enough. Yeah, it was big enough. Yeah. One of those marathons I actually did with bronchitis. It was so miserable. <laughs> that would but, be, uh, I've had bronchitis. <laughs> That would be miserable. It was that, miserable. Yeah. <laughs> that is not good. Uh, the other the other thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, you're a certified yoga teacher, yet you do not teach yoga. Oh, Why? you really read my LinkedIn profile. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, I'm super like, curious. I've actually thought about doing that. I love yoga. Yeah. Uh, yoga does a whole world of good for me and some of the things I have going on, and uh thought about getting certified but I never wanted to teach so I was I'm super curious why you decided to get certified and you don't teach well I did it backwards so I actually did the 300 hour certification which you're supposed to do after you've done the 200 hour for teaching I did the 300 hour first um, I saw this you know probably it was like a flyer on a bulletin board at my yoga studio in Burbank California when I was still living there and the 300 hour does a much deeper dive into the history of yoga and, um, and much more beyond poses. Um, it, it goes into, you know, mind body work, anatomy, and it all sounded really fascinating. And I remember it was this whole application process and part of it was an interview and I was being interviewed by the instructor and she said, why do you want to do this if you don't even have your 200 hour and you don't teach? And I said, this is for me. 
I'm turning 40 in a couple weeks. This is for me. I think I really need this in my life right now and where I am. And she thought that was the best answer ever. And so I did the 300 hour first. And then when I moved to Birmingham, weeks after I moved to Birmingham, there was an opportunity to do the 200 hour, which, you know, again, kind of did in reverse where I'm actually learning more about the poses and why they exist. Mm -hmm. Um, And also it was coming from a very different perspective. So I got this broad perspective of all these different kinds of yoga. And um, and yeah. And so I did teach yoga for, I don't know, a hot minute. (laughs) (laughs) For like a couple of months or whatever. Would you do it again that way? Yeah, I would. I would. I feel so grateful they let me into that 300 hour. I was the only one who had not done that previous training. And, but I got so much out of it. So much out of it. Yeah, so it's just for me. Thank you. (laughs) That's awesome. Any questions that you're hoping I would ask you that I haven't asked you? My favorite color? I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. That's the beauty of editing. (laughs) It is, right? Right? How come people don't believe in editing? Um, No, I'm I'm great. Thank you. (laughs) Great. So how can people connect with you, get a hold of you? What's the best way? Uh, To learn more about Blue Fairy, just go to bluefairyfairy.org. And for my book, betteroffbald.com, in fact, the um, audio version just came out a couple weeks ago, so that's exciting. And um, and for me personally, andreawilsonwoods.com, all my social media and stuff is there. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you, Andrea. Thank you so much uh, for joining me today and having this great conversation. And uh, I certainly see why this could go while you're running over from your last one. <laughs> you could have kept talking for a long time about these things. Oh, thank so, you so much, uh, Maureen. That's it for the Message Engineer Show. Uh, thanks so much. Like, subscribe, and all that good stuff. See you next time. Mm-hmm.